we've never seen before. You've done the impossible. We've seen our mountains move before. Your word is unstoppable. With expectation, we declare those mountains stand before. You belong. You belong to God. Now that doesn't just mean that you he owns you. He could own you, I guess. He created you. But he gave you free will. Free choice. You can do whatever you want. Make whatever decision you want to make. Live any kind of life you want to live. It's your freedom. Your life. You can do what it with it whatever you want to do. You can even take your own life. As awful as that would be, it's your free will to do that. That's a lot of responsibility. So the song's not God owns you, but it's that He wants you. That you have a place if you want it. You have a place to call home. You have a place to belong. You have somebody that will miss you. You have somebody that desires to be close to you, that desires your good. That's what it means to have a home. That's what it means to have a family. That's what it means. You belong to God. You belong with Him. You belong in His kingdom. You do. Even if you're making decisions right now that doesn't look like it, God still says you belong to me. I have value on your life and I want you to live for me. I know who I am in Christ. Amen. You can be seated tonight. It's always, I preached this Wednesday, I mean this Friday for a youth service in uh, Mississippi and I told the young people there that it still makes me nervous to preach to young people because you want to know, people, your generation, want to know what does this have to do with me? What does any of this have to do with me? Is this relevant to my life? That's the question that haunts me every time I stand here and talk to you and read from this book or talk to you about a story from this book or say anything to you because who am I to tell you what to do? Who am I to tell you how to live? I feel very inadequate at times to just get up here and tell you stuff. Yeah, I've lived a little bit longer than you and yeah, I've seen maybe a few more things than you've seen, and I've had a few more experiences, but still it doesn't make me that much smarter than you, doesn't make me that much better than you, to be able to tell you what to do. So what does it matter? What does this matter to my life? That's the big question. How does this help my life? How does this help my life? So that weighs on me. I think about it. I think about it a lot. What can I do to help you? What can I do to get you to live for God? What can I do? 
I'm not saying that you're not. I know there's different struggles in here. But how can I really inspire you to live for God? I think about that. I worry about that. I think about it even more now that I'm a parent because I look at Sage and I think, how can I really inspire her to live for God? Because that's what I want for her life. And that's what I want for your lives. I want you God. That's what we want. All of these young adults that surround you. That's what we want. We want you to live for God. And we think about how to inspire. And sometimes it feels, just quite frankly, that's what I told them on Friday. It feels strange. You get up and you read from an old book and you stand behind a pulpit and you preach. And you think, is it getting across? Is it, is it doing any good? Is it doing any good? I think about that. So the Lord has been dealing with me about reaching you. Making sure that my message is clear. and That I've done my part to reach you. To give you everything. Because the reality is... You're graduating very, very quickly. We had a youth group of 11 and 12-year-olds, and now you're 17. Seems like someone made mention in the van, everybody's turning 17. I think almost everybody is 17. I just feel like it. I felt like for a while everybody was 12. Now I feel like everybody is 17. You're growing up very quickly, and the time is ticking. And so... I was reading, I'm just going to preach a little bit different tonight. I was reading in the last part of Judges from our previous World Before World, and I had listened to the last couple chapters in my headphones, and so I went back and I just reread it and looked at it. And chapter 21 uh, was the most wild story in the Bible. Did you make it to Judges chapter 21? Did anybody make it to Judges chapter 21? This is the craziest story in the Bible. Anybody make it there? Sister Caitlin made it, but she's the only one. And she's laughing because she knows the story that's in Judges 21. If you think the Bible is boring, you have not read Judges 21. If you think it's an old stuffy book that doesn't have anything to do with your life, you haven't read Judges chapter 21 because it's all about dating. It's all about dating. It's all about a bunch of guys who are afraid that they are never going to get married. So they take some extreme measures. So they take some extreme um, circumstances. So they go down. How many, how many, how many got there in Word Before World? Anybody? No, okay. So you just, you just, we just got to start from the beginning then. We just got to start from the beginning. So I was reading this today, and they are of the tribe of Benjamin. They have been wiped out. I mentioned this last week a little bit. They've been wiped out because of a horrible crime that they committed of murder, these men. They wouldn't turn over the culprits, so there's a civil war in Israel. And after much fighting and many people lose their life, over, I think, 50,000 Israelites lost their life in just a few days. The, the, tri the tribe of Benjamin is completely wiped out, including women and children. Because in the Civil War, it's so brutal, so violent, so vicious, 
that they just go in and they just wipe out cities. And now, you've got to remember, the theme of Judges, like I talked about, is every man did what was right in his own eye. There was no king in Israel, so there was no law. There was no rule of law. And so everybody was just doing whatever they thought was right. So it's just a bunch of people trying to figure it out. It's just a bunch of people trying to get things right without God, without anything to do with God. They're just, and they make a huge mess of it. It's like a comedy of errors, except there's a lot of blood loss. And there's a lot of people hurt. So if you kind of zoom out from it, it's funny. And if you zoom in and you think about the individual lives, it's tragic. And, you know, that's just really how humanity is. When you zoom out, it's just a tragedy that's almost funny in how stupid humans can be. And how petty and ignorant we can be when we start doing things on our own. And the dumb things that people do. I mean, I know you watch YouTube videos of People that do dumb things. I mean, that's you. Can, if you put a dumb video on YouTube, you're going to get way more likes than if you put like a really smart lecture on YouTube. I mean, people want to watch wipeout videos more than they want to watch trick trick skateboarding that lands it. You want to watch them when they wipe out. You want to watch them do something dumb. I mean, people do dumb things. Not you guys, I know, but other people do dumb things. And we like to watch it on YouTube. And so this is just, now, when you zoom in, you realize how, how much pain and hurt it causes. But if you zoom out, it's the dumbest, most ridiculous thing ever. So, okay, so here's this setting, the Civil War. They've wiped out all these people. They've wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. There's, there are 600 men left. There are no women. There are no children of the tribe of Benjamin. They have burned the cities to the ground. They have killed every man, woman, and child in this vengeful civil war of their brethren. And then they start feeling guilty about it. And they say, well, there's only 600 of these guys left, but we made a vow that we would never let them marry our daughters. But we killed all of their, women, all their ladies. So we're not going to let them marry from our tribe. And we wiped out all the ladies from their tribe. And remember, this is without God, without asking God. They just did it. They just acted in some foolish way. So it's just so foolish to me. They wiped out all these people, and then they start feeling bad about it after they've already killed everybody. They're just like humans. Just do something. Just do it. Just do it. It's kind of, they must have been young people. They must have been a bunch of, no, I don't, adults can be dumb too. They just did something. Then they thought, you know, we probably should have done something different. Duh. We probably should have shown some mercy. How about before you slaughter all their infants, then you decide to, no, they just wiped everything out, burned up all their cities. There's 600 men hiding in the mountains. And they're like, well, we want them to raise up children, but there's no women. There's no way for them to get married and have families. I mean, this is just bizarre. So, you know, they're a bright idea. They've, they've made a vow. We're not going to intermarry with them. They're a bright idea. Well, they say, first off, they say, Who's, who didn't show up to the battle in this poor city? Uh, I think it was Ramoth Gilead or something. I don't remember the name. But Jabesh Gilead. They, they didn't show up. So what they did is they went and they killed all their men and they took all the women and they, and they gave them over to those guys to marry. Here. But they were still short. They were still short for matches, 200 people. So there's 200 guys that are like, don't have anybody get married to. 
I mean, this is just bizarre. It's in the Bible. Right there, you could read it. See, that's why you got to read to the end. You never know what's going to happen in the Bible. So here's what they tell them. They said, well, these folks that live in Shiloh, they're having a party. They're celebrating the, an offering to the Lord. And their young ladies come down and they like to celebrate and they're having fun. And when they do that, you're going to go out and you're going to steal you a wife. And you're going to take her back and marry her. Now, how can you, now, dating, like, can you imagine someone's love story? How did you meet? Well, one day your grandpa came down to my hometown and kidnapped me. I mean, could you just would not imagine your grandparents to say that story? Not even good. I've never met her grandparents. <laughs> oh, my word. I've got some family in here. So they go down. And so it's just, I mean, it's just read it. You should read it when you get home. It is just, it's a comedy of errors. Now, like I said, it's like a tragedy. When you zoom out, it's really kind of funny. And then you zoom in and you think about the poor women that got kidnapped. And all of a sudden, you, you weren't married. And then, to, you know, you get kidnapped. Like, I just could see like a big, like, butterfly net coming out. And just like, and just, I don't know what they did, but they just scooped them up. And took, it was just like, this is crazy. And God did not sanction any of that. The last verse reads, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So this is everybody doing ridiculous stuff. It's just like a snowball of events. There was a murder, and then there was a civil war, and then there was brutality and wiping everybody out. Then there was remorse. And so they're like, okay, now we're going to fix it. So you know how they fix it. They kill more people, kidnap some people, and then kidnap more people. And they're like, okay, all better. We fixed it. Does that not sound like just what we do? We make a big mess of things, and then we're like, okay, let me try to fix it, and then we make a bigger mess, even more mess, and hurt even more people. That's just the human condition. That's what happens when you just do what you want to do. That just happens when you just live a life. We make a mess of things, and then we try to cover it up, and we make a bigger mess. So I'm just kind of feeling depressed at this point in Scripture. I'm reading, and I'm thinking, this is just bizarre. This is just bizarre. I mean, we just make a mess of things. How on earth can anybody live for God when we are just so foolish? And people who had testimonies, who knew about the great judges of Israel and heard the stories of deliverance, how can they make such? These are not pagan people. These were God's people making such a mess of things. And it just made me, maybe I'm just a little weird, but I just thought, this is bizarre. This is weird. This, this doesn't make sense. And then I see the next book of the Bible is the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is completely opposite of the book of Judges. I think it's interesting the way the books are put together. That's why I like to read the Bible. If you've ever read the Bible through I like to read it just as they listed it right there because I think it's interesting the way that God allowed the books. I, don't, I guess he had a hand in it since it's his book, kind of side by side with one another. And so I thought about how ridiculous and quite frankly, I've been to secular school and how devaluing of women that those chapters are. I mean, they are nothing more than possessions. And it really bothers me really bothers me how 
little value they have. It does. It bothers me. And I've been to secular university and they tear the Bible apart as a sexist book, as a book that's filled with the patriarchy and it's all about men and it's all about this and it just tears down the place and the role of women in society and it's just an awful book got me blah 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 I've heard it all and of course I don't believe that but you read something like that and as Sister Nikki would say that's just kind of disturbing it's just kind of disturbing that that this would happen in God's kingdom that these women would be kidnapped that their families would be destroyed and that they would be basically sold into some sort of servitude called marriage, but not with somebody that they loved. In fact, somebody that had done a crime against them. It seems so ridiculous. But what you have to remember is that God did not sanction any of that. It was a culture in which they lived and they were acting like the cultures around them. It was worldly behavior. The world has always devalued the life of individual human beings. They didn't care about the individuals. They wanted a tribe in Israel, and so they murdered people in order to fix their problem of wiping a tribe out. It was this group think that God did not sanction, and it was a worldly behavior. But then, after that, these kind of big Civil War ideas and things of people making a mess of things. In the midst of that, God stops for four chapters and he tells a story about one young lady that was not even an Israelite. And she was a Moabitess. And if you are a biblical scholar, maybe you, some of you in here are, the Moabites were birthed after Sodom and Gomorrah fell, they were birthed in sin. They were a cursed people because they were the product of a sick relationship. And it's in the Bible. I'll let you read it. The story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. They were a cursed people. So there's this woman that is of a cursed people, not of the children of Israel, not of a child of God, but there was something in her, something in her that allowed her to overcome all of her adversity and become something in God's kingdom. Enough so that God paused in His great story between the book of Judges and the book of Samuel where the kings go on and He pauses in the midst of all of this mess that humans have created and there is one person that has no political power. She was not an Israelite. She was not a man. And she was not wealthy. You talk about a person. She was liable to be kidnapped in the day that she lived. This was a person that had no value. You understand, it's coming, it's coming from the book of Judges. Where we just found out that they weren't going to let their daughters marry. So they were going to murder other people and take their daughters. So you matter so much less. That's what, that's what the culture was telling her. You matter so little. That's what the world was saying. That's what the culture was saying. And God pauses and says, no, she has value to me. I'm going to write her story in the midst of of all of this trash. 
in the midst of all of this stuff of people not getting it, of not listening, I'm going to write this girl's story because there was something in her heart that cannot be taught. When I think about it, I think about what made Ruth do what she did. It was not that she was trained. It was not that she went to Sunday school, but there was something inside of her. And if you could get what she had, you were going to make it. You're going to make it through every adversity. You're going to make it through every trial. You're going to make it through everybody who doesn't want to see you succeed or doesn't, every enemy or force of this world that doesn't want to see you live for God or every family circumstance that would discourage you and people from the outside are saying, how in the world did they stay living for God? If you get this one thing that I cannot teach you, I can't teach it. I can't give it. I can't impart it. I cannot... Put it in you. I wish I could because if I could, if I could give it to you, there would not be one of you in here that would be turned around from living for God. But it's something that you've got to catch in your heart. It's something you've got to catch in your spirit. It's got that something that recognizes that I want to be a part of what God is doing and I'm not going to let anything turn me around. And it comes deep in here because if Ruth can do it, then you can do it then it's available for you. Because she was the least, the least likely, though with the least amount of connections possible to be used by God, and yet there's a Bible, there's a book in the Bible named after her. Four chapters paused of the chaos to say there's a heroine that I'm going to tell you about because she pleased her. Because there was something about her. There was a look in her eye, they might say. There was something in her heart that maybe nobody else could recognize, but God could recognize. She was a Moabitess. She married a, a family that's an Israelite that moved to Moab to escape a famine. She marries them. Her husband dies 10 years into their marriage. So she's a young adult. Well, most likely she's a young adult because they got married very, very young in those days. So she's a young adult. And her mother-in-law loses her husband first. And then her brother-in-law dies. So these are three ladies trying to survive. And like I said, they are at this in this culture, not how God designed it, how sin designed it. That you had no you could not, as a young lady, you could not really provide for yourself. There was no room in the economy for young ladies. It's not like it is today where you can go and get a job. And where the majority of the workforce are women. That's not how it was. If you had to have a job, you had to have a husband to get that job. Because they just weren't hiring young ladies. It's just, that's just the nature of it. That's just the world in which sin created. And the world in which they were living in. So these were poor people. And so her mother-in-law hears, her name was Naomi. She hears that there's food back home. So they, they're going to move back to Bethlehem. They're going to move back to Israel. And her Apparently this Naomi was a very good lady because her, her daughters-in-law loved her like a mother and they wept at the thought of leaving her. But she, she entreated them. She, she really got down and talked to them and said, listen, I've got nothing. I have no more sons that you can marry. There's no prospect. And if you hang out with this old lady, you're never going to get married. You're never going to rise above poverty. You're never going to have a future. You're never going to have an heir because their husbands died before they could have any children. You've got nobody to look after you. 
you need to go back to your country. You need to go back to your father's house. You need to serve their gods. You need to let your family take care of you. And there was two girls, Ruth and Orpah, and Orpah was sad and heartbroken, but she decided to go back. And the Bible doesn't tell us why Ruth decided to stay. It doesn't give us an explanation, but it just said that she claved to her mother-in-law. And then there's the very famous verse in Ruth chapter 1, verse 14, where she said, where you lodge, I will lodge. And where you go, I will go. And your God will be my God. And your people will be my people. And she just had this recognition in her eyes that I don't know what it was. It wasn't taught to her. She didn't, she didn't go to Sunday school. She, she wasn't trained. She was not a Jewish person. She did not grow up around the temple. She did not know God. They had other gods. But there was something. And even Naomi wasn't that serious because she said, go back and serve your gods. So that doesn't tell me somebody that really believes this with her whole heart. She was a nice lady, a good lady. But it just just seemed odd to me that she said, go back and serve your gods. But Ruth said, no, there's something. I just recognize something that God's doing. I recognize that this is the truth. I recognize and this is where I want to be. It wasn't I knew everything. It wasn't I studied it out. I read the Torah backwards and forwards and I know everything about Moses and this is the truth. No, it's just something in her heart that said, this is where I want to be and I want to be close to where you are I don't understand everything I want to be close to where you are she just had this willingness and this desire in her and I don't see where it was taught to her at least scripture doesn't explain it maybe it was but I don't see it it doesn't think that her training was very important it's just there was something in her heart there was something in her life it said I'm going to stay close to where God is. Your God's going to be my God. I recognize some value there. To make a long story short, I'm going to hurry, but you need to read it. It's only four chapters. She goes back home to Bethlehem, and they're dirt poor. They have nothing. And so in, in Israel, which is unlike Moab and unlike the surrounding countries, that God had written into the law that you, as a rich man, if you owned a field, you could not... You could not plow or you could not harvest the corners of the field. Those are for poor people, widows and orphans to glean from and they could get free food. So there was a welfare system basically built in that you you had to leave the corners. And so Ruth knows about this, knows that there's a custom of going out and so she volunteers. Chapter 2 tells us that she volunteers, that she says let me go out. Let me go out and let let me get food and she stays out all day. All day. And, and people take notice of how, because it's a small town. I mean, back in those days, the world population was very small, and Israel's population was very small, and Bethlehem's a tiny town. So everybody knows her, that she's the stranger that is Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's a stranger. She's, she's a Moabite. She's not an Israelite. But they notice how dedicated she is to her mother-in-law, and that she stays out all day, and that she works really hard, and there's just something about her. She's the lowest on the totem pole. She should be the one that everybody pushes out of the way and gives least least treatment to because she's a nobody. She's poor. She's a widow. She's not the youngest person around to marry. She's just a nobody. She is a nobody pushed to the edges, gleaning in a field. But people begin to take notice of her. And one man in particular takes notice of her, the man that owns the field. And he says, isn't this Naomi's daughter-in-law? 
And they said, yes, or he asked, who is it? And says, Naomi's daughter-in-law. He said, wow, she's really working hard. And he just, there was just something about her. It was something about her spirit. Something that cannot be taught. But it was something about her spirit. And it drew him to her. And he began to talk to her. And he said, I want you to only glean from my field. And I want you to stay close to my young men because they'll... They won't let anything happen to you. And I want you to stay close to the young maidens that work for me. And, and we're going we're gonna, to, I've instructed my young men to drop handfuls on purpose for you. So that as they're picking it, they're letting it fall on purpose. Because I understand, I see what you're doing. And she stayed all night long, all day long, rather, in gleaning. And she comes back with all of this food to her mother-in-law. And her mother-in-law says, where did this come from? says a man by the name of Boaz and immediately immediately something clicks in her mother-in-law's mind I think the Lord was beginning to work and he says Boaz is our near kinsman now that to us that's that's kind of weak that's kind of bizarre but but to them that was a saving grace because there was a law that if you were widowed, that the land that your husband owned, you couldn't own it. You couldn't raise up children as a widow. You couldn't possess the land, and there was no heirs to leave it to. So in order to keep property value passing along, you had to have an heir to pass it to. So what you would do is you would, if there was a relative that was close to you, the closest related to you that was a male relative, he could redeem the land. And if he redeemed the land, he would marry the widow and that their firstborn child would get the land. And they would take on their dead, deceased father's name. So, and it's, it's kind of a bizarre custom to us, but it, it was an act of mercy to redeem and to marry this widow because you, it was your obligation to your brother or your cousin to marry his wife, to provide a child to have his name. It was an act of kindness, an act of mercy. Now, it seems foreign to us, and, and it really kind of is. It's a little bit strange, but I want you to recognize that in this situation, that God saw a woman that nobody would have given a second look to, but God saw something in her. And so this, this thing clicks in Naomi's mind and she says, okay, here's what I want you to do. And this is, ama this is the amazing part of the story that Ruth did what her mother-in-law said. And she did everything that she said. That she, It took a lot of guts. It took a lot of faith. Because she goes down when he is bringing the corn, or the, the, the Bible calls it corn and barley. It's, it's a wheat type thing that they translate corn. But he's bringing it into the barn. And they would stay up all night, uh, kind of, I guess, shucking it or, or, and, you know, kind of filtering out the chaff. And they would pile it together, and then they would sleep in the barn, I, I presume maybe to, to protect the crop from thieves. But all the men would sleep in the barn that night, including the owner of the field. So he's asleep in a by, you know, around the crop. And Naomi says, I want you to go, and I want you to lay down at his feet. And it's a, it's, a, it's a sign of respect. 
that when he sees you at his feet and he wakes up and he's a little surprised that you're laying there, then I want you to ask him to redeem us. Now, that the, the word redeem is not an accident. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to redeem us. Because we, you can see yourself in her story, because we are the ones that have nothing going for us. We are the ones that in and of this life, we have nothing going for us but to toil away and to die. And we need a redeemer. We need a redeemer. So she said, I want you to ask him to redeem us. Now that took a lot of guts. She's a nobody. He's a wealthy man. So she lays down at his feet. The Bible says he, he awakens in the middle of the night and he's afraid. He kind of jumps and there's a, there's a woman laying at his feet. And so he says, what, what do you want? What are you doing here? She begins to tell him, you are my mother-in-law's near kinsman. And she said, will you bring us into your house? Will you cover me? Will you marry me, basically? But this was not like a romantic marriage. This was our life depends on it. You need to bring us into the protection of your home. You need to help us. We have no other choice. A very vulnerable position a very broken position, a very real position. She was obedient, she was humble, and she was desperate. And you know what Boaz says? He said, I will. Because I know your character and your reputation is such that you work hard and it is a, it is, you didn't choose a young man. So this signifying that he was older than her. She wasn't out looking for just somebody for herself, but you somebody that could bless your family, could bless your mother-in-law. You, they, it could just feel it. And I don't understand why Boaz was so kind, but he could see something in her, something that could not be taught from this poor widow woman that is a nobody, and God could see something in her. And he led her to a redeemer that could see something in her. He said, I will. I will. And he goes through the legal process and, and, and gets the rights to the land and he marries Ruth. And they have a child. And that child has a child. And that child has a child. And that son, his name is David. Ruth is a great grandmother of King David. A Moabitess in one generation. Three generations later, king of Israel. Generations later, the Savior of the world. Because one woman, God paused his story to say, let me tell you about my servant named Ruth. She was vulnerable. She was weak. She was a nobody. But she had something inside of her that said, I want to do what God's called me to do. I want to be who God's called me to be. And that, young people, is something I cannot teach you. I cannot teach you to get that spirit. I cannot teach you to get that attitude.
something that you've got to get for yourself, that you've got to get from God, that you've got to really get down in a prayer room and understand and tell yourself that I'm going to do what God's called me to do and I'm not going to take no for an answer. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be super smart. You don't have to be super talented. But what you have to have is what I cannot teach. I could teach you doctrine, and I hope to, and I can teach you truth, and I can teach you things, and we can do lessons and, and, and stuff about how to live a good life, and we hope to do all of that, but there's got to be something inside of your heart because if you get that, there is no adversity that you cannot make it through. There is no adversity. There is no family situation. There is no persecution. There is nobody mocking you or making fun of you that can keep you from living for God and fulfilling what God has called for you in your life. And what you think you're doing could be something so much bigger. And God is structuring this plan that's going to, your story might be told for thousands of years like Ruth. Could she really imagine what her place in history was going to be? No, she just had something inside of her that said, I feel like I need to go. I feel like I need to do this. And then her mother-in-law says, you need to ask this man if he will redeem us. And, and I, w- I, I would think that would be weird and awkward, and I wouldn't want to do that. But there was something inside of her that said, yes, I will do it. I don't know why. I don't know if she knew. She didn't know the character of this man. I mean, he had been nice to her once or twice, but she didn't really know him. She, there was just, she wasn't trained in this. She didn't understand everything. But there was just something inside of her that said, yes, to God. Yes, I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Yes, I'm going to surrender my life. Yes, I'm going to be here. Why? I don't know, but I just feel like there's something inside that's pulling me toward this thing. That's the thing I cannot teach you. It's that desire to live for God. You've got to develop that desire in your heart and in your life. And when that desire is kindled in here, there is nothing that's going to stop you. There is nothing that's going to stop you. There is no trial. There is no temptation. There is no weapon formed against you that's going to prosper. But it's got to come from that desire in your heart. Because that is the unstoppable force in your life. Is if you desire to live for God, God's meeting you right there saying, I'm not going to let anything stop my purpose in your life. I'm not going to let anything stop. But you've got to have that desire for me. You've got to have that desire on the inside. You've got to have that want to in your life. And if you have that, there is nothing, nothing that can get in your way. And I wish I could, I wish I could just put it in your life. I wish I could just put it in your heart. I wish I could just give it to you. But it's not mine to give. They can help me with the music. I'm closing quickly. It's not mine to give. It's up to you. It's up to you. Do you desire to live for God? I'm not, I'm not asking you to say yes to me. I'm not asking you to raise your hand and say I do because so much of what we do in church is done by kind of peer pressure. And that's a good thing. Positive peer pressure is a good thing. But this is more than positive peer pressure. This is more than just lining up because your friends do. It's more than just lining up because what we do. It's a desire in your 
heart. It's something deep in your life. It's something that I cannot teach you. You've got to develop it on your own. I remember where I was. God was dealing with me about getting the Holy Ghost. I remember things, moments in my mind begin to stick out to me as that desire was developed in my life. Yeah, I was trained, I was taught. But nothing really could prepare me for that desire to be placed in my heart. I don't really know where it came from. But God began to work in my life. I was about eight years old. And God began to deal with me. I wasn't very smart at eight years old. I wasn't a theologian. I wasn't a scholar. But there was a desire in my heart that I'm sure people prayed was there, but they really couldn't teach me. Your parents can pray for you. They can instruct you in the ways of truth, but really that desire has to be caught on its own. You look at anybody that's living for God today, and that's the reason why. I mean, really living for God, really doing something for God, it's because there was a desire somewhere in their life. And the circumstances of their life and what they're doing and what they're accomplishing, they look completely different. There are people that are doing great things for God that you don't know about. That if you looked at their life, even by a metric or measurement, you would say, I don't know if they're really accomplishing anything for God. But yet inside of them, they're fitting into God's story, something that's so much bigger than they even they're stepping into something that they don't even understand, but it's just in their heart to say yes. I could be talking to a Ruth-type person, male or female, here tonight. That you could step in right now and you could do something in your school. And maybe it wouldn't be promoted or, or tweeted out or something to some big number, but you could influence one person who could influence something else, who could change something, who could be a part and plug yourself into God's kingdom where you couldn't imagine what God would do because you have that desire that says, whatever you want me to do, God, whoever you want me to be, I say yes. I say yes to you. I want you to stand tonight. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think back. Maybe tonight's the first night God's dealt with you about saying yes to His plan for your life. But maybe it's been a few months ago or maybe even a year or so ago since you felt that desire kindle in your heart where I really want to do something for God.
God. Not just I want a stage, not just I want a platform, but I really want to do something for God. I really want to be useful to Him. I really want to be of service to Him. That desire in your heart. Maybe it's been a while since you felt the touch of the Holy Ghost in your life. Maybe you've never received the Holy Ghost, but tonight you feel something unexplainable kind of tugging at your heart that tells you this is something good. I don't want to leave this. I don't understand everything, but I don't want to leave this. Let me tell you, young people, you need to nurture that desire. You need to protect that desire. You do not need to let distractions keep you from letting that grow in your heart and in your life because that's what's going to keep you through every up and down of life is that desire to be close to God, that desire to walk with Him, that desire to do what's right because God won't let you make a mistake when you have that desire in your heart. And I know that I'm talking to young people that have that desire. I've seen it in you. And I believe there could be young people here that have forgotten what they really desired in life. And they let that zeal and that passion fade away, but it's still inside your heart. And God is asking, will you kindle that flame? Will you let me talk to you one more time? Will you let the power of the Holy Ghost minister in your life one more time and remind you of who you are in me? And remind you of what I can do in your life. I want you to lift your hands right now all across this place. And I want you to begin to pray, God, move right now in my life. Move right now in my life. Come on, begin to pray earnestly from your heart tonight. Let the Lord lead you. Let the Lord guide you. God, rekindle that flame of desire inside of every one of our hearts, God. Lord, that thing that's inside of us that longs to be close to you, God, don't let it be extinguished through the cares of this life. It's all right, this altar's open. If you say it's been a while since that flame has been kindled in my heart or in my life, this altar's open to you tonight. But all across this place, I want you to make it a prayer room. I want you to ask for This has been an episode of Axiom Youth Student Ministries. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you've enjoyed and we hope you'll come back for the next one. Thank you for tuning in.